Promise no promises. Seeing into the heart of things. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series. Seeing into the heart of things, earth and equality within indigenous and ancestral knowledges. This collection of episodes emerged from the Master Symposium in fall, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, in collaboration with Culturescapes 2021 Amazonia. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to discussing indigenous thought, decolonial feminisms, and the political possibilities of the mythic imagination. Certain questions will preoccupy us. How do indigenous cosmologies create forms for resistance? How does the Western imaginary of the Amazon from its roots in racial capitalism to its corporate tech paternalistic present, cloud our understanding of how its people and non-human spirits narrate themselves. How do ecological and decolonial practices find their form in the visual and oral matrices of indigenous narratives across the world? Since the long 16th century, the organization of the world has found its hegemonic form in hierarchies of power and possession, between those who exploit and expropriate and those who are exploited and whose lives, lands and resources are expropriated. This is not the past, nor a function of ideology only. If the projected supremacy of one form of life over all others is only made possible by manifold forms of violence, one of these forms remains the invention and constant reinvention of nature by colonial cultures. This invention rests on an idea of progress in which nature is construed as what one emerges from. Indigenous ancestral epistemologies hold a different understanding of the real though. The land owns us, Aboriginal Australians might say. podcast series features talks of Vandria Borari, translated by Carolina Brunelli, Katerina Botanova with Quinn Latimer, Paulina Fyodorov, Katya Garcia Anton, Davi and Dario Kopanawa, translated by Sara Saltalamakia, Nobotic with Anna Garthon Sabugal, Jeremy Narby, and Ashfika Raman. Extraction by Jeremy Narby a Switzerland-based writer, activist, and anthropologist. Since 1989, he has worked for the NGO Nouvelle Planète, 
backing initiatives by and for the indigenous people of Amazonia, including land titling, bilingual education, sustainable resource use, preservation of plant knowledge, and environmental monitoring of petroleum companies. He's the author of several books about shamanic epistemology and Western knowledge systems, such as Intelligence in Nature and The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge. 37 years ago, I was 25. And so that's 62, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, so I was a young anthropologist, and I was fresh from the suburbs and the university libraries. And um, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of uh, reality. I was a materialist, rationalist, humanist. I'd been to good schools in Switzerland, England, and the United States. And I ended up choosing anthropology and studying the situation of indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon. I was interested in questions of political economy and justice in the world and the World Bank developing Amazonian territories on the one hand and the human rights of indigenous people on the other. And um, so I ended up living in a community of Ashaninka people right in the middle of the, the Peruvian uh, Amazon in the forest. And um, the young people spoke Spanish. The, most of the adult women did not. Half the men up to around the age of 40 spoke Spanish. Otherwise, it was only uh, uh, Ashaninka. Most of these people um, didn't have shoes. I mean, you know, these were um, indigenous people from the rainforest. So I showed up with my rubber boots and my tape recorder and my Swiss army knife and so forth. And I'd come to study them, study how they use the rainforest. The goal was, um, it was supposed to be in their favor. I wanted to show that they used the rainforest rationally, and this would contradict the World Bank's argument that they didn't, which the World Bank used to confiscate their territories and give it to individuals with a market mentality so that they could cut the trees down and establish cattle pastures. So this was a politically motivated uh, investigation. For me, it was clear that I had come to study them and not the other way around. Um, I wasn't questioning the premises of anthropology at this point. Um, but I soon saw that they too had an eye on me. And one day I was hanging out with some young Ashaninka uh, adolescents and um, they spoke Spanish, and they had questions about where I came from. Where is your land? What's it like in your land? Could I go to your land? Well, I started answering uh, these questions by referring to a, a round planet on which we 
all lived. And I could see some puzzled looks. So I, I grabbed a grapefruit that was there and, and a lemon. And I began improvising uh, an explanation of the movements of the planets, you know, with the sort of a, with the zeal of a young missionary of rationalism. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly give a, a, a course on how the earth moves around the sun. So here's this lemon here on which we all live, and it goes around the grapefruit here and turns on itself and day and night. And it wasn't a very good course, I must say. Um, but still, at one point, I stopped and said, and look, so here's the lemon on which we all live. And I live in Europe, which is on this side. And um, here is the Peruvian Amazon on the other side. And I could see that my young Ashaninka interlocutors were somewhat uh, dubious about this uh, presentation. Um, in the months that followed, I came to understand that the people in the Ashaninka community had a, a completely different view of um, how things were that um, not only did we not live on a round sphere and even less on a lemon, um, but that uh, the world was made of different strata and that white people like myself, Viracocha in Ashaninka or gringo in Spanish, we lived um, below the level of the Ashaninka, below the earth on which the Ashaninka walk, underground, which is why our skin is so pale. And we live in uh, vast cities filled with sophisticated technologies and airplanes and factories. And we sometimes come to the surface of the Ashaninka world by coming up through lakes. And we come to kidnap Ashaninka women and children. And we put electrodes in their bodies and extract the body, fa body fat, which we turn into a fine oil, which we need to run our machines and the motors of our airplanes. And uh, they call these white vampires who do this pistacos. Well, uh, the first time I heard this story, I thought, well, these, this is a, something that was kind of off the, off the radar as far as I was concerned at, at this point. It's like, okay. And, and then it got troubling because I soon realized that when they told me this story about white people, um, that they actually thought that um, I was possibly a pistaco, that I, I had come. And actually, so what do these pistacos look like apart from having a white skin? Well, they're male, uh, they have blue eyes, fair hair, 
and a beard. So um, I certainly looked like a, a pishtako. Um, and so it seemed reasonable to think that I'd come to extract something. Well, as the months went on, so there I was living with people, studying their rational uses of the rainforest and, and so on, and I, I, there was this lingering notion that I was perhaps one of these uh, uh, white vampires. And on reflection, I realized that from the Amazonian point of view, this was fairly reasonable. I mean, the, the Westerners that they'd seen over the last 500 years had all come to extract something, conquistadors. I mean, you know, so gold, wood, rubber, uh, minerals. Um, so it seemed uh, there was a long historical tradition of Westerners coming to the region and um, extracting. Um, well, uh, several times some men, individual guys, would stop by where in the house where I was living, and um, they'd say, um, you know, there's a river not too far from here uh, where there's, um, I've seen gold, gold deposits. And, you know, I could, I could smell the bait. Um, so uh, I was happy to answer, oh, gold, oh, no, I'm not interested in gold. Um, and, and this was extremely surprising to them. Uh, a, a gringo uninterested in gold. Uh, this was uh, something they'd never seen before. Um, they actually seem to have a fascination for certain aspects of uh, gringo hood or gringo dum. Um, in particular, um, the objects, the technology, fascination with the. So, um, uh, the co typical conversations would be uh, people I hardly knew would come and sit next to me and say, and, and look at my boots. I'd say, hmm, rubber boots with leather linings. H how did you make them? Well, um, actually, I bought them in a store. I, I don't, and this was a pertinent question. I mean, rubber comes from the Amazon. There are rubber trees. Uh, leather comes from animals. In fact, so they have rubber. They have leather. And they wanted to know how to make such boots. And so I'd say, well, look, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to make these boots. And that once again, I'd get that look like, this guy must be, he, he's hiding something. He can't be as stupid as he, he claims to be. <laughs> um, and then, uh, ooh, your, your Swiss army knife, uh, wonderful. So how did you make that? Uh, actually, really, I didn't make, ooh, and how about your, ta your uh, Walkman tape recorder? Pretty fancy. They actually used to enjoy hearing themselves sing, and so you know they'd come and sing, and then we'd listen over. And but so how did you make that? Look, I tell you, I I really don't know. How it's, so that was the, and this was a subject of conversation that lasted for two years, and really there was that uh, fascination with technology, and it it crops up in in other indigenous. Uh, 
uh, cultures in the Peruvian Amazon, the, the Piro who live next door in their language when they refer to white people, the word means owners of objects. And Davi uh, Copinalo um, has a whole chapter in his wonderful book, The Falling Sky, called um, uh, Merchandise Love, and white people are the people of the merchandise. And by the Yanomami reading, uh, we are obsessed with our merchandise. We rip minerals out of the earth. We melt them in huge factories to produce huge quantities of merchandise, and we dream about it at night. That's who we are. The Ashaninka people that uh, I was living with would also ask questions because they were truly puzzled about um, white people. And wh one question was that, okay, so um, they're interested in gold. You give them gold, and then they only want more. You can, so they, they want to extract. You give them what they say they want, and then they're never satisfied. Why? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Good question. I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Two years went by. I became accustomed to being seen in, in this way. I also discovered it's very hard to prove that you're not a vampire. Um, you know, actually, the more you try to prove that you aren't one, the uh, more suspicious it becomes. But I figured that uh, it actually motivated me to um, become an activist and to try to break out of the cycle of uh, extraction and to make myself useful, extract nothing, um, and, and prove them wrong to a certain extent. So after two years, I left this community. It was actually quite funny because towards the end of my stay, they, they always have a party when, when, they have a party when people arrive, and then they have a party when people leave. And actually the parties when people leave are the, are the best. <laughs> and um, so there was the party for my departure, and la despedida, no? And, um, so everybody was making speeches and saying what a good fellow I'd been despite everything. And, you know, you'd asked a lot of stupid questions, but you had a lot of goodwill too. And, you know, you never stole anything. And so, pretty good. And um, so it was my turn to make a speech. And so I got up and said, well, um, uh, would, would it be um, uh, useful to you if I stayed a little bit longer? And the uh, head of the village uh, got up once again and said, um, actually, uh, not really. Um, you, you, you're a bit of a liability to us because you can't see the snakes in the forest. We always have to walk with you. We've been doing it for two years. You, you said you'd come and stay two years and study what we know about the forest so that you could go back to your land and tell people there that we know what we're doing and so that they'll stop sending in the bulldozers and so forth. So actually, the best thing you could do is just do what you said, go back to your country and try to make yourself useful in that way. Thank you very much. Uh, 
fair enough. So that's what I've been trying to do uh, ever since over the last um, 31 years. So I started working for this NGO, so that's fundraising for demarcating ter territories in the Peruvian Amazon in favor of indigenous people or setting up bilingual intercultural education programs and, and so on, which felt extremely satisfying to be able to reciprocate and, and give back. And this also meant that I've had the privilege of going back to the Peruvian Amazon frequently and going and visiting different indigenous areas, not just Ashaninka people, but Awahu, Nshawi, Matsigenka, and so on. These are completely different languages and, and cultures. And yet I found that they all referred to pistacos, and that it wasn't just this Ashaninka idea, but that it was widely shared among indigenous people in the Western Amazon. These, these stories that white people are these vampires bent on extracting vital force and body fat um, is common among indigenous people, and to this day, in fact. Well, one day in 2002, I was with some Awahun Jivaro people in the northeast of the Peruvian Amazon, and we were traveling through the forest. And uh, we stopped in on an isolated house that belonged to one of the members of our, our party. And his wife was there, and she had a, a canoe full of uh, manioc beer. And so we stopped, and she started uh, dishing out bowls of uh, manioc beer to the different members of the, the party. But when she saw me, she, she went all pale and she started shaking, and she couldn't come close enough to me to give me a, a bowl of beer. And uh, she started, she was agitated and speaking in Awahun, which is not a language I uh, understand, but she was saying the word pishtako several times. Um, well, her husband reprimanded her and said, uh, I, the equivalent of don't be silly, serve this guy some manioc beer just like it would be anybody else. And so there we go, thank you. And then we, we continued on our, our way after this and the, the, the husband, uh, who was a fellow I'd known for several years and a teacher uh, in a school for bilingual education, he said, um, don't take it personally. Um, it's, it wasn't ill will. It's just that she's not used to seeing white people. And uh, that's when it really uh, came home to me that um, from the point of view of an indigenous Amazonian person who hadn't had the uh, experience of seeing many white people, that it was somewhat equivalent to being in the presence of Count Dracula himself. Um, pale skin, you can almost imagine the blood dripping off the teeth. Um, a, pretty, a pretty grim prospect, really. Um, and so I put the question to myself at that point. Um, was I really 
something like a, a, a white vampire. Um, well, it's true that uh, my culture certainly had Pishtako uh, elements, and my family historically had participated in the creation of global capitalism, the wheels of which had been greased with uh, the labor and the lives of indigenous Amazonian people during periods like the, the rubber boom. It's also true that you can read the historical documents about the different genocides that were imposed on indigenous Amazonian people during the extraction of rubber during the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And, and rubber is not just this thing. Rubber is what was needed to make the metallic wheels of the machines of the early industries flexible. It, it was an essential component to the early mechanization of capitalism. And it came from trees in the Amazon and was extracted by indigenous Amazonian people. And tens of thousands of these people were enslaved into this and tortured and killed. And the historical documents are pretty clear. The stories of uh, gringos as white vampires bent on extraction uh, may be metaphoric, but they're fairly coherent. And so since that day, I've uh, resolved to, well, to, to try to stop extracting altogether. And so that also means in terms of anthropology, thinking about it so one can extract rubber or gold or what have you. But as an anthropologist all those years ago, I'd been, I was there to extract data and turn it into a doctoral dissertation and become a doctor in anthropology and an, advance my own career. So even though I hadn't been there to extract gold, I'd still been extracting. And this was also part of my culture. So as a recovering pishtako, as it were, um, I continue to try to dedicate my life to reciprocity with indigenous Amazonian people, because I think that is the the antidote to extraction. And I note also that um, this anthropological encounter, it's somewhat like seeing oneself in the mirror. One, one goes to uh, meet uh, a radically different culture, and then one sees oneself in their gaze as they look back. And it's an unvarnished image. It can be troubling, but uh, one can learn a lot. By, uh, by submitting oneself to the difficulty of, of that experience. So um, that's the first um, part to say. That, so those are, that's stories about the stories. Now uh, some comments on the practices of natural empathy, and in particular involving songs. Um, here I'll just put some elements on the table and we can maybe open them up to, to discussion afterwards so um, I can't give a complete overview of the shamanic practices of 
indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon. But what I can say is that a fairly generalized uh, view among indigenous Amazonian people, especially in the Western Amazon, is that plants and animals are people like us, beings like us, intelligences like us. When we look at them, we see a tree or a plant or an animal. We don't see a person, but that's because our eyes mislead us. But there are certain plants that you can use, ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogenic plant uh, mixture, or uh, tobacco, which can be concentrated into a tobacco paste. These powerful plants enable you to see beyond what you normally see, and what you see is the person inside. And so their view is that we have kinship with all the other species. Um, and the way to um, communicate with these other species is in what we would call states of modified consciousness, when one perceives the entities inside the other living beings. Anthropologists would call these entities spirits. Um, I wouldn't actually use that word, and we can talk about it later. Well, I'm, I'm kind of skipping over things here because I, I'd like to get to, to the music. The idea is that each living species has something like an owner, or a mother, or a father, or an essence. And, um, or something like a personality. And so if it's tobacco, it would be the mother of tobacco. And so this entity oversees individual tobacco plants and oversees the species. And when you are in uh, a shamanically induced visionary state, you can perceive this entity and interact with it. Well, how does the interaction occur from the Amazonian point of view when you perceive these entities in your visions you pay attention to them they emit a melody and this is a melody that corresponds to what they know and who they are and what you can do is you can learn that melody you can sing along with them and this is the job that shamans essentially do. It's right at the heart of, of the, the practice of natural empathy. You go out of your normal way of being in the world, you move into this other state of mind, and you pay attention to what you see, and then you listen, you hear the melody, and you sing along, and you learn the melody. And then you can use that melody subsequently to call these entities. More importantly, by singing along, so you have, for example, you're seeing the owner of tobacco or the mother of tobacco, and you're listening and you hear the melody and you sing along with, uh, singing along with these powerful beings, you can start to see things from their point of view. And once you see from their point of view, you can get knowledge about how they see you, about the world. 
the anthropologist Gerardo Rachel Dolmatov had said, has said that what ayahuasca does first and foremost when it's used by indigenous people and, uh, is it allows nature to voice complaints. And so by uh, ingesting these plants and paying attention to what you see and listening to these melodies and singing along with them and seeing from the point of view of these non-human entities, you get knowledge and uh, you get power. Now, um, in this uh, way of understanding the world and the world being humans, plants, animals, everything that's alive in the world, um, music is, is the modality of interspecies communication. In fact, um, what they are saying is that these normally invisible beings or these essences that animate living beings, the essence of the essence is a melody or a vibration. And so that is just how central music is. And it is also the one thing that we can have in common with these entities, because we too can emit, we can sing, we can emit melodies. And so that is where the interface uh, happens. And so though that's a, a brief description of some of the practices of natural empathy that indigenous Amazonians uh, practice. Um, it's clearly, um, off the radar of Western epistemology. Um, you know, you go and you propose that we start singing to the grass, the trees, and the pigs that we keep in uh, uh, their pens. Um, I think most people around here would think that you weren't serious at all. Um, well, that's okay, being considered not serious. But um, still, I think, so I'm, I'm not saying that we should all do what Amazonian people do. Um, but I am suggesting that it is interesting to think about such a, a radically different take on the nature of nature uh, to advance our thinking about the relationship between humans and all the other species. And I think it's uh, interesting to note that um, yes, it's about knowledge, but it's also about music. The anthropologist Jean-Pierre Chaumet, who was studying the shamanism of the Yagua people in the Peruvian Amazon, wrote a book in French. It's Voir, Savoir, Pouvoir. To see, to know, to have power. First you see, then you know, then you have power. And so there is a clear connection uh, between knowledge and power and also music being right at the heart of the, uh, of the practice. Um, anthropologist Peter Gao, if you want to look into this more deeply, I'd invite you to read the book by Peter Gao called An Amazonian Myth and Its History. And um, he describes the, uh, the shamanism of the, the Piro people 
the same people who call white people owners of objects. And his conclusion is that these uh, powerful beings that Piro shamans perceive um, are made of knowledge and they are songs. Beings made of knowledge and that are songs. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods, to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team Tabia Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, FHNW 2022.